This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at portlanddistro.com. Hey everybody, I hope everyone's doing well. Uh, this week, we're going to have an episode, well actually in this case, two episodes, represented as From the Ball. Now normally, I like to present everyone brand new content, however, I had some family matters. Hey everybody, that I, need I hope to everyone's deal doing with. well. Uh, this week, week or so, going to have prohibited episode, me or to actually in this case, a brand two episodes episode of everything represented to you. So I like to keep things on track. Vault. This is way now back. Normally, these episodes like are present very, very beginning with brand new when content. Just starting to figure However, out what I'm doing I had here. some family and, uh, matters. Frankly, that I still I don't really know what I'm doing. Uh, fully the last still week or so, on learning all that stuff. prohibited me. But this is to episode a brand new five episode of everything episode black. Eight. So I like to keep from things on track. Like a lifetime. This is ago. way back. These episodes. One of these are episodes the very, was very the first beginning. interview I when did. I was just starting to figure out tent. what I'm doing. Someone here has been a huge uh, frankly, influence I still don't really know what I'm doing fully. Prior to working on learning all that stuff, which still exists. In this kind Five of nomadic, episode on the road eight. sort of way, from but what way seems back like when I was a lifetime ago, it was one of the most. One of these episodes was the first interview I did with Malcolm Tent, someone who has been a huge. The other episode is a tour was, episode. He's the proprietor with, uh, of Trash American style. of Tombs, which still exists. When we were on the road, in this kind of nomadic, incredible band on the road Italy, sort of way that we but did way back when I was touring with. Way back. It was one of and, the most uh, important. There was some controversial stuff that happened on that tour, which we address in that uh, that episode. And uh, the I other episode to check is it out. a tour and episode. We'll be back next week with, uh, with brand an early stuff. version of Thanks Tombs everyone for understanding. When we were on the road with and the try my incredible best band from Italy to stay on track that we did things, a European tour with. This way is back. enjoyable for everyone. And, uh, there was some controversial stuff that happened on that tour, which we address in that uh, that episode. And I just want everyone to check it out. And we'll be back next week with brand new stuff. Thanks, everyone, for understanding. And I try my best to stay on track with these things. But I hope this is enjoyable for everyone. Once upon a time, before the internet, before downloading, there was a golden age when people bought all of their music at record stores. All the time, these record stores became places where people would congregate, get turned on to new ideas, and just hang out. 
They became the nexus point for kids that may not have fit in. The weirdos, the malcontents. Trash American Style was one such store that existed first in Brookfield and later in Danbury, Connecticut. Malcolm and Kathy, the owners, are two of the most radical people I've ever known. I can't even begin to calculate how many hours and gallons of coffee I logged in hanging out there, getting turned on to new music, talking to the cast of characters that worked there, discovering new bands. It opened me up to things I would have never been exposed to if I'd played it safe. I want to emphasize that the closing of Trash wasn't brought on by financial hardship, but instead by greed and deceit. Ultimately, it was the underhanded, cowardly methods of Minuteman Press, Trash's neighbor, coupled with the landlord's refusal to renew their lease that did them in. A great documentary called I Need That Record summarizes the entire saga. Despite this, the story continues. Malcolm and Kathy, faced with the obstacle of their store closing, decided to take it on the road and travel with the store, taking it to the people. This is one of the primary lessons I learned from the Trash American Style crew. The refusal to give up, to choose your path and stick with it despite everything else. That's why Malcolm will always be the man. I caught up with Malcolm in the parking lot of Heirloom Arts Theater in Danbury this past weekend. The occasion was an adrenaline overdose show. The parking lot was filled with old punks and younger kids. Malcolm rolled up with his distro and we talked. Any more hell breaks sure. loose. <laughs> so I already have um, a basic uh, historical summary of uh, trash written, which I'm going to insert into this whole thing. Yeah. But maybe just in like a few sentences, kind of encapsulate the uh, you know just the basic sh shutdown of the store and uh, the decision to you know take it out on the road. Right. You know, that's because that's what I want to focus on. Is that, okay. That sort of thing. Are we rolling right now? We're rolling right now. All right. Well, basically. What happened to the brick-and-mortar version of Trash American Style was that after 21 years in business, uh, 18 and a half of those years in the same spot on Mill Plain Road, we were informed by our landlord that our tenancy was no longer required. Um, we had a neighbor who owned a print shop, and he had been trying to angle us out of there for about a year. And, uh, you know, he offered to buy us out. We, we wouldn't sell. He then tried to buy the building just to get us out of there, but uh, he was such an incompetent boob that he wasn't able to do that. So I guess he had a couple of sweetheart meetings with the landlord and they discussed when our lease was going to be up. Turned out that it really wasn't that far in the future, so he just waited. And then when I went over to my landlords at that god-awful diner that they operate, uh, with a new lease in my hand, ready to renew, I said, okay, 10 more years? He said no more years. I was like, oh, okay. And well, your arms are too short to box with God, essentially. Um, so we packed up and shipped out. And we had already been doing a lot of on-the-road vending as was. You know, I always had my little circuit, always doing distro shows and things like that. And it was weird because I didn't really think of myself as being burnt out on retail, but it turned out that I was. Like, I, I will never forget waking up the next day after we had finally moved everything out. And, you know, I woke up with a start. Oh, my God, got it. Oh, no, I don't. I don't have to go anywhere. I think I'll just go back to bed, which is what I did. And um, from that moment on, I just kind of decided to keep doing it on the road. And we sort of had it in the back of our minds that we would look for a new spot and do more brick and mortar. But as time went on, 
and uh, we began to enjoy our newfound freedom a lot, we just kind of sort of put it on the back burner and then off the stove and then in the fridge and then just kind of threw it out the back door into the compost heap. And uh, we reached a real critical moment when we were clearing out a lot of our stuff that we had in storage. And um, I came across the cash register. And I looked over at Kath and I said, Catherine, are we going to sell this thing or keep it? And she said, sell it. And that was it. That was pretty much the, the Rubicon we crossed. And uh, I really don't have any urge to open a store at all. Sorry, kids. <laughs> so as far as the radius of how far you, uh, you travel with the distros, I mean, you've, you've been, frequently I see you in New York City, you know, other locations in Connecticut. Yeah. So how, how far and wide do your travels take you? Pretty much, like, if you were to take a compass and draw a circle around Danbury, anything within a one-and-a-half-hour radius. And one-and-a-half-hour drive I consider to be local. But there are certain special events I'll do, like there, there used to be a really hot record swap down in Washington, D.C. that I would travel down to. Um, I still go out to Cleveland every year for the, for the Devo fan convention, and uh, that's always a great, great time. Um, essentially, if I have a place to stay and I can do something productive for a couple of days, I really don't mind going anywhere. I've got a permanent case of road fever. I love to travel. Um, that kind of ties in with all the... You know, I'm playing an awful lot these days. Right, right. Yeah, maybe we'll address that later. I don't know. Yeah. But um, I just love to travel, and it's really, really great to roll into a town and, and be at an event where people are like, oh, my God, it's, it's vinyls. Getting used to the new lingo. Vinyls! Wow, look, it's, uh, I've heard of this band, uh, Led Zeppelin. Yeah, Led Zeppelin, are, they're awesome. My dad's got one of these, you know, and just like continuing to blow people's minds just in different spots on the map. Vinyls, that's um, an expression I've, that I've had to grow used to that. Yeah. It sounds like some like a German or European like expressing. Oh, yes, you have the vinyls. The vinyls. The vinyls, yeah. <laughs> so the... Um, not not being not having the responsibility of the daily rigors of running the store has opened you up to do more musical pursuits. Way. Okay, so is there anything, yeah. you know, maybe run down what, what musical projects you have going on right oh, now? Oh, definitely. And um, I always, that one of the key reasons that um, I really kind of decided not to open up again was just because I get to do so much music now. I've always had various bands going on, but now I'm doing a lot. Um, my main band is Ultra Bunny. Yes, Ultra Bunny. And um, since the store got shut down for us, we've uh, recorded two full-length albums, three seven-inchers. We've got another seven-inch in the can. We've played more shows in the last four years than we had in the previous seven. I mean, it's crazy. On top of that, I do a solo acoustic punk rock thing, just me and one guitar. I cover everybody from Black Flag to Dead Kennedys and uh, Ramones, and I got all lots of original stuff too. So I do like half covers, half originals. I've got a uh, project studio band called BB Gun, which is like the more dark and introspective stuff. Um, I've got a noise project called Infra Bunny, which is also all studio, and that's basically like soundscapes and noise sculptures and uh, just weird sonic textures. Um, I think that's it for now. Do yeah, uh, all of these projects, you do tour with them, or, you know, it's uh, yeah. essentially... Ultra Bunny Tours, um, it, today is June 2nd, so as of this date, we're going out to Ohio at the end of July to play some dates. Uh, we're playing Bridgeport next week. 
um, New London the week after that. We're going back out to Ohio end of, July, uh, end of August, um, you know, cultivating contacts hither and yon. With the solo acoustic thing, I play anywhere that I possibly can. Um, I just got my passport application because I played a few dates with this British guy named Tim Holehouse, H-O-L-E-H-O-U-S-E, who said, Oi, mate, and I'm not going to try to duplicate his accent because it's, it's futile. Oi, mate, they would love you over there. So I was like, damn, why not? Why not? Passport application, uh, take, take my guitar in a backpack and just go. I hope, fingers crossed, to do that before the end of the year. Oh, so there, there's some possible international travel looming ahead? Yeah, hopefully. yeah. I've always wanted to do it, and I've never been able to do it. Now I'm able to do it. So, and that's why I'm telling everybody about it, because the more I talk about it, the more I'm going to have to do it. There's like, there's no backing out once I spread the word. <laughs> I think I have like one or two listeners uh, in Europe, so. Oh, cool. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> nice. Better so, watch out. <laughs> so uh, Trash American Style, as well as other record stores, uh, provided more than just a place to buy records. Oh, yeah. And this is like one of the key things that seem to be uh, lacking, this community aspect of things. Yeah. Um, Typically, these places were meeting places as right. well as places of commerce. And right. the meeting and exchanging of ideas was probably equally as crucial as the actual selling of the, the products. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So do you think, what do you think is filling this void now that a lot of these brick-and-mortar stores are, are closing? And as far as, like, youth culture goes, do you see, a, you know, I, I see a void. Do you see anything filling that void? Uh, that's a tough one. I mean, I think a lot of it depends on where you are. I mean, uh, Danbury, for example, has always been really fortunate that this town's always had something, whether it, you know, whether it was us or the Heirloom or Molten Java over in Bethel. There's, you know, they come and go. They're not always permanent, but there's always been something and somewhere that people could go. Um, the internet obviously doesn't do it. That does not count. That is not a valid substitute for face-to-face -face interaction in the slightest bit. Um, I'd have to say nothing, really. You know, and I, and I really feel, I know, it's sad, isn't it? I, and I, I feel really bad for people. Uh, you know, people can badmouth Danbury all they want, but here we are in the parking lot of this awesome venue, getting ready to see a really good show, and at least there's something happening. Go to Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania, and there's nothing happening. So I wish I could say that there was, but I don't think there is. And that's the really the time when I, I feel really bad about not reopening, you know, is the fact that I, I really do, I miss that community aspect of it. Because you never knew who would walk in the door. You never knew what was going to be on somebody's mind. You never knew who was going to meet each other. Oh, my God, I haven't seen you in years, you know, and, you know, that kind of thing. I really miss that. In an overall like, societal sense, do you see the erosion of these sort of uh, communal community meeting points as, a, as a, a decay in our overall culture? I think it, it's more like a pendulum, you know. Um, it's like an ebb and a flow. There's always going to be down times and up times. You know, cycles, things always move in cycles. I mean, this society's been in a state of perpetual decay for, you know, pick a pick a year, pick a number. Um, it's definitely um, a pack of dogs eating themselves, and it has been for quite a while. And it's always been this sort of underground thing that's kept, if there's been any sort of spark of life in this society, it's been here. You know, like what people like us and what we're doing uh, musically and culturally and artistically, 
that has been the life of this society. And I've always maintained that anything good comes from the underground. It does not come from the top and trickle down. All you have to do is look at what is in the top 10 or top 40 and see who's prefab and who isn't and see and you'll see who has artistic value and who doesn't and in the top 10 there's ain't much in the way of people who have come up from the underground but you know you can look around and you'll see people who you know would have gotten beaten up 20 years ago for walking out in the street looking the way they do but now it's completely accepted that's the power of the underground and, and the ability to shape people's perceptions of fashion and art and culture. So screw society, man. Now, as far as uh, you know, downloading records and whatnot, and, you know, some people look at it as stealing. Some people look at it as promotion for their bands. Yeah. You know, or, or getting people out to shows. Like, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's it's really developed. It's de- it's devolved. Let's say it's devolved into a really good means of promotion. The only people who uh, are screaming about it being stealing are the major labels. And if anybody knows about stealing, it's the major labels. You know, talk about honor amongst thieves. Um, just speaking from my own personal experience um, as an artist, I find it damn near impossible to sell a CD at a gig, but people will come to my shows knowing my stuff because they might have seen a YouTube clip or you know gone to my website and downloaded a track or something. And to me that's okay, you know because yeah, it'd be nice to make the dough off the CDs, but the recognition, is really really cool it makes it a lot easier to go to um you know bethesda maryland for example and have somebody there who knows who i am maybe two people but my god somebody knows who i am it's incredible so i think it's just it's like a real shift now in how if an artist is going to try to be self-sustaining i think it's really shifting towards live performance and more away from product you know unless you reach a certain level um, which I know I'm not at yet, where people really just want to buy your stuff because they're that much of a fan and they'll plunk down the bread for a record or a CD. I think you really have to work to get up to that point. Well, one of the, uh, as far as talking about the live performance and being able to perform live and delivering the goods in that setting, you know, the, the master of that, James Brown. Yeah. You know, like, if you want to eat, you have to work. Right. So would you say that this sort of downloading culture is like forcing artists to work on their live performance as opposed to just being able to provide a, a slick recording or some sort of production? Uh, again, it's, it's kind of hard to say. I think it depends on what the artist's work ethic is to begin with. I mean, you can get a lot of mileage out of being a mysterious hermit. Uh, you know, look at someone like Cat Power or Brian Wilson or Bonnie Prince Billy. You know, there's this whole mystique. And then you can go to the opposite direction of road dogs, you know, someone like Twisted Sister, who will play anywhere at any time, or Cheap Trick, uh, or myself for that matter, um, who just are willing to hit that stage and just have it. You know, maybe there's a lot more spectacle. You look at Lady Gaga and like what she does. Um, I don't know if she does that strictly to keep the bread, you know, the butter on her bread, but uh, she certainly does put butts in the seats. And uh, I think the spectacle doesn't hurt. Um, I don't know, I think a lot of it just has to do with innate charisma. Like either you got it or you don't. And if you don't have it, you have to work a lot harder to get your message across, to project like that. Some people don't have to. 
You know, they find it very easy to do so. And I think those are the ones who have real staying power. One of the things um, that I've admired about what you've been doing uh, in the last several years is, you know, the store closing. That could be a crucial blow to a lot of people. And a lot of store owners have gotten jobs at, you know, whatever, Trader Joe's, Target, yeah. giving up, their, giving up their, their dream to do what they want to do. Right. So the sort of staunch individualism is something that is, is a, a trait that is, is an admirable trait, especially in today's society. So thank you. What keeps you focused on that path, essentially, like once the store closed? You know, what was what was the uh, the whole, you know, like what what prevented you from getting a job at, say, Starbucks or something like that? To me, it was never an option, never an option. I, I worked a job you know, up until the time I was 22 years old when I opened up Trash American Style. And then from after that, I worked a job for like maybe a year, year and a half part time just to pay the basic bills and keep the store running. And I will never forget my last day on the job was at, um, see, I don't even remember what, it was some stupid drugstore. I used to be a, uh, an inventory taker, you know, a little calculator on my hip and counting the beans. And I was at some stupid pharmacy and um, I knew that was my last day. Like I'd already given notice and I said, I'm not coming back because you know, I'm, my store is starting to happen and I ain't working here again. And I knew that was my last day and I was never gonna work a job again, period. Now, of course, I can't predict the future. Uh, you might find me, uh, well, I can't say borders anymore, but you might find me behind a Barnes & Noble counter or at the local gas station or digging a ditch somewhere. But as far as I'm concerned, uh, it's just not an option. Like, I, I view that as failure, and I don't view myself as a failure. So I just know that I, I don't want to do that, so I'm not gonna. And I, I really, honest to God, wish more people would kind of view it like that. You know, like, you're not forced into doing anything, really. I mean, your circumstances might be dire, you might find yourself somewhere temporarily, or you might have to do, you might have to compromise for a little while, but those should, as far as I'm concerned, that's just the way I look at it, those should be temporary expedients. And once you're able to get over the hump and, you know, out of the trough, pursue your vision, whatever it is. Maybe you want to be an accountant, be the best accountant that ever lived, go for it. Just enjoy whatever it is you do and, and make your art your living. And that's the way I look at it. This is my art. This is what I do. Uh, I'm an unrepentant capitalist. I think capitalism is an art when it's done right. There's no reason why anybody should ever feel bad coming out of a transaction. Customer happy, seller happy. There's nothing wrong with that. So at, at the root of this is basically um, not, not so much reacting to, you know, what, say, an economic situation might be dictating to you, but never losing sight of what your goal is on a, on a more, say, quote-unquote, spiritual level. Yeah, you know? I, yeah, definitely. So that, that's the, kind of the takeaway from that then, I guess. Yeah, totally. Okay. Totally. I, it, I think calling it a spiritual thing is actually very accurate because, you know, obviously a lot of thought goes into it, but the drive, he said beating on his heart, comes from within, you know. And... Um, just like all of my interactions with people over the years have always, I don't know, I've just always had that kind of bigger goal in mind, you know. I'm not just here, I'm not, I never ever thought, hey, I'm here to sell you a record. You know, I'm the conduit to facilitate you getting what you want 
and what you need. A medium, really, nothing more than that. And I think that if there's any reason why I've been able to keep doing it all these years while others have fallen by the wayside, is because of that. Nobody ever once walked into Trash American Style looking for a, uh, a Wide Awake record and had me try to force a Metallica record on them. It, hey kid, you know, if you're like Wide Awake, you'll love this. You know, it's like, no. No, 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 you can't dictate to people. And, and that really is one of the things that's lost in the, the internet purchasing sort of facelessness of buying records these days, is that, oh yeah, I want to go buy like a, a Dark Throne record, so I go to some distro and I buy it, but you might not know what's in the periphery, right. you know, unless there was someone there to, to sort of have that conversation with you. About, exactly. If you like this, you might like this other thing. And an, an, an algorithm on Amazon is not a good substitute for that, you know? It's a little frightening, actually. Yeah. Like <laughs> mathematically, like, duplicated, having a, a real personal interaction with some sort of, you know, program or something. Yeah, it doesn't cut it. And I find that all the time, you know? One, one might get kind of jaded and think that, you know, the internet has taken the place of that personal interaction. Not at all. If anything, when I talk to people, they're like, man, it's just so great to actually talk to somebody about this, you know? Like, somebody who knows who Kate Bush is, or somebody who saw the bad brains, or, yeah. you know, whatever. I mean, the human element will never, ever, ever be replaced. Well, there's also the, the intangible things of even just seeing a show flyer. Like, when you go to a record store, you know, you're going to buy, like, something that might not be related to that. You might be buying, like, a, you know, a Mazzy Star record. When you see a flyer for a Chromax show, yeah. you're like, well, wow, you know, what's this all about? So it broadens the, you know, the experience, just Definitely. having this, this physical place to go to. Definitely. Like, the, the oldest... The oldest gatherings for humanity has always been the marketplace. The market is where humans have always congregated. And that's something else that I don't think is ever going to change. It, it's just, it's human nature. It's in our genes. So you don't see um, millions of people sitting in front of these tiny screens wired together by this you know, wireless network, uh, a substitute for that? Well, you know, I'm sure there's some governmental body somewhere that would like to force the issue, but if it does happen, I don't think it, people are going to go willingly. There's always a certain subset of people who have no social skills whatsoever, you know, for whom the internet is a real boon, but, uh, you know, your average human being doesn't really want that. Are, are you familiar with Ray Kurzweil? No. The singularity theories about... Um, like humanity and uh, technology sort of, you know, melding together and reaching like a critical state. Mm. It's, it, it's interesting because nowadays it really, he's, he had all these predictions over the last 30 years about technology and that's one of his predictions is like the sort of singularity of technology and humanity. Hmm. And uh, I just want, I was curious if you'd heard about any of those theories and if you thought maybe you had a prediction about how far away we might be from something like that. Well, it's kind of, it's another one of those intangibles, you know, you'd, you'd have to make something like that really attractive to, you know, everybody. Right. You know, not, not just the, the sociopaths or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't go out on a limb and try to predict that. I, it, I, don't rule, I don't rule it out, but, you know, humanity, how do you, how do you predict what this mass of hairless monkeys is going to do from one minute to the next? Yeesh. <laughs> another, this is another kind of far out unrelated question, but it is kind of related in a, um, you know, a more esoteric level, I guess. Mm. And it has to do with alien visitation. And mm. Sort of, you know, I've been watching this uh, documentary on Netflix called Ancient Aliens. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's all this quote-unquote evidence of 
alien visitation to ancient civilizations and whatnot. Yeah. Now, all of these, you know, sort of alien embodiments have been humanoid in nature. Okay. Right. Now, do you think that it would be possible, if there was such a thing as time travel, that these quote-unquote aliens are actually future humans visiting the past? That's a theory. Yeah, yeah good question. You know, because if there was another sentient being from another universe, why would they be humanoid? Indeed. You know, why would they even be carbon-based? Indeed. Yeah. yeah, it's a good one. I had never thought of it like that. Yeah. But I like it. Yeah, you know, it's if you think about how, like, technology, how, like, even in the last, say, like, from the Wright Brothers to 1968, in, like, basically 70 years, we went from flying these, like, cloth and wood contraptions into, like, landing on the moon. Right. So thousands of years down the line, it's not, un, un, you know, unreasonable to think that man could, you know, harness uh, time travel, you know, yeah. or something like that. I don't, I don't rule it out at all. Are you, are you a Doctor Who fan? Oh, I love Doctor Who. Well, all right, then. There could be time lords in our... Uh, in our uh, not ancestry, but uh, further down in our family tree. Patrick Troughton, by the way, was the best doctor. I agree, yeah. yeah like, there, there's like some newer ones which I haven't seen, like the more recent Doctor Who stuff. Yeah, I kind of lost track after they reintroduced the series a few years ago yeah. with uh, the guy who looks kind of like you, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and I thought that was a pretty good series, but after that, I my, my guitarist loves Doctor Who, like really started a Doctor Who discussion group and all that. and. Uh, he actually, <laughs> he linked me to a website that had a complete history of Dalek props. And they're like, well, you see, this was the Mach 7 body with a Mach 1 head. And if you look at the back of it in this frame, you can see where the helmet was dented. That occurred in episode 6 of, I was like, and it's just page after page after page of Daleks and what they were made of. I mean, I'm not that far gone, luckily. <laughs> So essentially, that's it. Do you have uh, any like final words or you know, sort of you know advice for our sort of lost generation? I guess. <laughs> well, if you're lost, what's going on, dude? Not yet. I think 6:30 is the actual time. Um, so yeah, drink drink more cokes. Uh, well, first of all, don't drink Coca-Cola. Uh, pure poison. Choose your mutations carefully, because everything you do is a mutation. You change yourself no matter what you do. So you have to choose those mutations very carefully. Um, take your time. It's never too late. It might seem like it is, but it's not. Be more than a witness. I always have to quote the immortal Al Flipside. Be more than a witness. And... Just find whatever your vision is, whatever your art is, and be prepared to bleed for it. And that's all I got to say. Cool. <laughs> oh, one more thing. Have you oh, yeah. seen uh, that Reality 86 uh, thing posted? Yeah, I just saw that, actually. Yeah, that was amazing, wasn't it? Was it was pretty cool, yeah. I was, uh, last time I ever saw Flag was on that tour. and uh, Up in Poughkeepsie or out in... No, when I lived down south, I oh, saw okay. him in uh, Miami Beach. Right. South Beach, as a matter of fact, before it was South Beach, you know? Uh, and that was the night after the skinheads beat up Ratman. It was, it was pretty grim, actually. Henry had broken his hand, punching one of them out, and everybody was in kind of a down mood. And they all stayed at my ex-girlfriend's 
apartment building, which used to be my apartment building, which ended up being Versace's mansion later. And it was just like the Mongol horde descending upon this beautiful, beautiful old replica of Christopher Columbus's mansion. And um, Henry slept in the truck in an alley in the back. Um, they stayed over, ate all the food, and left. No goodbyes, no nothing. Just in and out and gone. What a way to run a ship, man. Tight. <laughs> Actually, uh, you know, when I think of Trash American Style, I often think of Black Flag, SST, and Charles Manson. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those are like the three biggest things for me from I got out of going to the, to the shop. Wow. Most of the SST catalog, discovering bands like Slovenly and yeah. Sacred Trust, is oh, in addition yeah. to, uh, you know, all the, the, the normal stuff, like Who's Could Do, Black Flag, Minutemen. Right, you know, right. And also the exquisite collection of uh, Charles Manson material that you had. Yeah. yeah. To this day, I do Garbage Dump as part of my solo acoustic set. And it's really funny. It, it doesn't matter where I am or what kind of an audience it is. All I have to do is say, this song's by Charles Manson. And people just like, they react immediately and suddenly they're very much all ears. And some people think it's really funny. Some people, I haven't really had anybody object to it, but I've seen people like, you know, kind of like, ew, gross. But people usually like it. I think it's hilarious. It's a good song. I know that much. Yeah. Have you seen the, uh, the Jim Van Beber film? Uh, the Manson family. No. I have to hook you up with that somehow. It's it's um, a very exhaustively researched Charles Manson pseudo documentary. Hmm. And it's you know I, mean, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with Jim Van Beber, the filmmaker. No. He's not a, a household name by any means. You know he's a one of the things I'm attracted to his work is that it's completely independently financed and hmm. it's all produced by him and his friends essentially even the actors are like non-actors hmm. yet he's able to get some of the best performances out of non-actors that rival you know people you see like in, in that are trained quote-unquote actors right right and he's done a bunch of shorts he's done a couple of feature films but by far like his life achievement to me was this 10-year process it took for him to make this manson film hmm. And, uh, you know, like, I think back, I think 2005, it, it had a screening, like a theatrical release. But it's available on DVD. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty well-researched re representation of the whole lead-up to the Tate LaBianca murders and, you know, all the characters and all this other stuff. Yeah. So if you get a chance to check it out, it's I'd, definitely... Yeah, I'd love to see it. The name's easy enough to remember, so yeah. that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, just the fact, I mean... Just the fact that there was, they had their own little society, and it had it was very, very rigidly structured with rules and a, you know, theology. I mean, really incredible. Not, it's not just your average, you know, hippie murder cult. There was, there was a lot going on. Totally. There. Yeah. One of the things that I keep reflecting on is the fact that, you know, Charlie was only out of jail for a few years in his adult life. Right. Yeah. Right. And he's been locked up for what? Well, he's got to be what in his 80s at this point. At least his 70s. Yeah. He's been locked up for decades. So those few years that he was out running wild and like, uh, you know, out there in California, he must relive those moments every single day of his life. I'm sure. Because you know, all, sure. all his reality right now is a concrete floor. Right. It, you know? and he really had it yeah. in the summer of love. And I always think about that, you know. What an incredible chance of fate that someone like Charles Manson 
was dumped into a place like San Francisco at a time like the Summer of Love. Like, what are the odds of that, you yeah. know? It, it's just it, mind-boggling. And the way I introduce Garbage Dump when I play it is like, what if this song had come out as a single during the Summer of Love? What if? Oh, garbage dump, oh, garbage dump. One shudders to think. And it's, yeah, and the thing is, is he could have disappeared and no one would have ever heard from him again and he could have lived happily ever after. Right. But there's that criminal mentality, man. Yeah. That tragic flaw that just put him on that path. Right. You know? Coupled with just the most random quirks of fate and chance meetings, I mean, what, it's just like, again, what are the odds, you know, that he would have found, um, oh, who was it? Uh, I forget who the first girl in the family was. He just had this way of finding these totally lost kids, and I guess because maybe he had been a pimp and knew how to work the psyche of a young, confused girl. But guys, too, like, yeah. he could zero right in on what their weaknesses were and bring them in. Sure. You know, really, really incredible. And if things, if he'd gotten out of jail a year earlier or a year later, everything would have turned out differently. Totally. You know, he probably would have sunk into obscurity because he wouldn't have had that sort of petri dish That's right. to cultivate in. Yeah, it really is something to meditate upon. There seems to be a lot of books coming out, a lot, another resurgence in books like uh, it, uh, creation books. They seem to be publishing a lot of this, a lot of more Manson texts recently. Huh. A lot of them are just kind of retellings of stuff you've already seen or like repackaging of existing material you know but yeah, yeah. yeah there just seems to be like sort of a you know a little bit more interest in Manson these days yeah the people have always been interested in Manson I don't even know how many Manson t-shirts I had sold over the years and you know all the cassettes and CDs and stuff like that have you ever read a book called Witness to Evil no I haven't stupid title but it's the best book I've ever read about the trial oh, okay. it was written by um, a reporter forget the guy's name but, you know, everybody's read Helter Skelter, sure. so you get the bugs impression of how things went down. This guy pretty much plays it straight down the middle, and he tells it like it is, and it's a really, really revelatory. See, that that's more what I'm after, is like an objective viewpoint on it, rather than something colored by the prosecutor. Or, right, you know. right. Witness to Evil. I wish they had given it a better name. Yeah. You know, but it really is, really is a good book. Quite recommended. I'd love to find that, then. Yeah. We'll have to roll. Looks like we're Thank going in. Thank you very in. much, sir. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. I'll see you down the road. Man. Right on. Take care. Are you sticking, up, sticking Tonight, around? Tonight's my, my parents' uh, anniversary. Uh. to the German. Sure, man. Metti in off, tutto, telefoni e roba. Dai, dai che de dente. All right. Everything Went Black podcast coming from Cork, Ireland. So we're about halfway through with this tour. Um, I got uh, Marco, Michael, 
from The Secret. I got Carson from Tombs, and you got me, Mike Hill, also in Tombs. So um, we're about halfway done with the tour. So how, how's things been going so far? Is everything everything going well? Anyone? Yeah, it's going great, actually. Like, we're really enjoying the tour right now, and uh, it's cool to be in Ireland. We're here for the first time, and we're drinking beers with friends, with brothers, so. That's right. It's, it's cool. Right on. So the thing that's been killing me, man, is um, the issue of uh, Nuremberg and your uh, your alleged uh, neo-fascist ties. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess it all comes down to um, some photograph that you, um, there exists a photograph of you wearing a Burzum t-shirt. Exactly. So you want to, you want to explain exactly what happened yeah, with the show so, in Nuremberg? Uh, it's all Garson's fault. Technically, it's all my fault because when Marco came to visit the States, he came to my apartment in New York and I had washed a Burzum shirt and I shrank it and since he's fairly smaller than me, I figured, you know, it's a good, good gift, you know? You like Burzum? What the hell? I a great gift. I appreciate it. Yeah. And so technically, technically it's my fault uh, because it was my shirt, which is ironic seeing as the promoter was going to let Toons play the show, but not the secret, even though, you know, we should have let him know that it was mine so we could have gotten wrapped up in the controversy. Yeah. But we keep our neo-fascist views like submerged, so um, yeah, I don't think they have, you know we're under the radar until they listen to this podcast. That is. So was this um, was this a press photo or a live photo? No, what was it was a photo? live photo. It was a live photo with me wearing a Burzum shirt, and that's it. We just received <laughs> an email from uh, Marco Avocado that the was taking the tour. care of the, the, the tour. And he said, okay, guys, I just received this, this email from the promoter from Nuremberg. Yeah. And he said that he already booked the show. And after that, he saw the picture and said, okay, I don't want the secret anymore because of this picture. But Tombs can play. <laughs> <laughs> it makes no, it, it makes, it, it galls me. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to be that reactionary. It's, when you go so far left, you go right, and you end up being a fascist yourself by telling people that they can't wear certain things, they can't listen to certain things. That people, it's like not trusting people's intelligence to, and, and assuming that they're not able to make a distinction between an artist and the person behind them. You know what I mean? There's, there's a very clear distinction a lot of times. You don't have to you know, agree with every writer that you read. They're, they're personal personal views, you know? I mean, it's... Even worse, in my opinion, because, I mean, I tried to get back to the promoter, like, explaining that we're, like, clearly an anti-fascist band. I mean, you can just, like, read our lyrics or, like, I don't know, Google any of our interviews, and we're claiming, like, pretty much everywhere that, I don't know, we, we're not a right-wing band, or we're not even close to being a right-wing band. So... I don't know, it's just stupid for me that someone, I mean, don't want to even listen to what you have to say. They're just like cutting you out because of fucking t-shirt. And when you, res when you sent them an email, they did not respond to that? No, not at all. Okay, Never. so they just had already made up their mind in the matter that you guys were fascists and they didn't want you to play the show and they didn't Actually, get back to you. They, they gave no explanation, they basically only said that they don't want to book any band that support 
Burzum, like a neo-fascist, or anything like that. Well, the, the real irony is that Burzum's music, in and of itself, though Varg has neo-fascist ideas and racist ideas, the music itself isn't necessarily promoting any sort of like fascist, fascist dogma or anything. And there's no Im even the imagery on his records. There's no, there's no fascist imagery. It's, no, it's nothing naturalistic actually. Most of it. Well, the problem is, is that Germany definitely bears a burden from the 20th century of what happened in World War II. Which, I mean, and I think even more ironic is the fact that from you not being able to play the show, or both of our bands not being able to play the show, with your family history, yeah. my family history, I mean, yeah. my grandfather fought and nearly, was nearly killed in Italy fighting against Germans, you know what I mean? He fought, literally fought them with bullets mm -hmm. and his body, you know? And for us, it's like we have the right to be able to assume the difference between, or rather the, the distinction between art and the artist and the views. And we can, you, you can dissemble those things. You don't necessarily have to be, by, by you know, association, uh, be it, like have be assumed that you're that you're you know fascist because you like you read some some fucking Kafka or something. It's like make this fucking yeah. connection somehow. Or you read Nietzsche, or you listen to Beethoven, or or Wagner, Wagner. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's where is the where is the line really in like where you know what sort of art you can embrace before somebody deems you a fascist. Well, yeah. I, I asked the uh, the the kid that gave the interview with you. Um, do you remember his name? That's a negative. Well, whatever, when we were in Munich, the kid that interviewed you, I was talking to him, and I was like, yeah, it's pretty, he seemed like a reasonable person. I was yeah. like, yeah, it's crazy about that shirt. He's like, well, it doesn't seem like the best way to promote your band. I was like, wait a second. You're telling me that an Italian guy in his own country or in a different country can't wear a shirt live because he's going to fear that people in Germany are going to react a certain way? That's some fucking insane, that's some insane nice. shit right there, man. Yeah, especially since, like, your grandfather yeah. spent, like, Diamond out. Yeah, camp. Concentration camp. Yeah. Well, you're, I mean, it's like Marco, your your um your background. You're not. You're you're from Eastern Europe originally. Like your I, family. Your family's from Eastern family, Europe. Like my family, all my relatives are from actually Yugoslavia. Like actually, it's Croatia, but it was Austria. It was Italy. Like it's was it, it's a travel troubled uh, <laughs> area. area. Yeah, totally. And, Very troubled Eastern. Yeah. And during the Second World War, my grandfather from my father's side was uh, prison. Yeah, imprisoned in a, in a concentration camp in Germany, like in uh, I think it was Buchenwald and Dachau, I think. The Dachau's outside of Munich. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, actually, he survived. Uh, because the, the war finished and he came back uh, to the ex-Yugoslavia like, uh, like on his leg. So he survived the war, but he died like right after, like for pneumonia or stuff like that. Right. I never, I never know him, but you know, it's, it's, it's crazy that someone tell me something like, okay, you're like, uh, you're promoting fascism or, or stuff like that and I like my, 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 my history is like this you know yeah so I, I can accept it you know 
and, and the, the, the real irony, for lack of a better term, is that they didn't even respond to your email. Yeah, I mean, it's totally, yeah. I mean, I'm okay if, we, if someone wants to start a dialogue or if someone wants to make us questions because, you know, it's a legit thing. I mean, you can ask someone, I mean, their opinion about different stuff, but I mean, we just, someone like just decided from a very superficial knowledge of like about hard bands that we weren't allowed like to play a show in their town because of a t-shirt yeah makes no sense in my opinion also because i mean if you really want to have this kind of extreme mentality about these kind of things you shouldn't allow any band that listen to black metal in to Europe. play, yeah, in Europe, European to play any level. show because I mean, uh, yeah. Burzum, Burzum is just like uh, one of the the bands that kind of promoted like controversial, controversial ideas. But I mean, no one ever, uh, no one ever asked me uh, why I was wearing a Dartron shirt, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of weird because they had like very controversial. Well, they, they ideas are. on their early works, but it, yeah. it's not like a, they're not as a, as iconic maybe as Burzum. Right. But you know, it's it's a very superficial way to face things. I don't know. You're I don't I don't really think that you're solving any problem by having like this kind of attitude. Like, a, well, and also you guys have been part of the hardcore scene for a long time too. So I mean, yeah. you guys you guys have been part of that. So yeah, yeah, it's totally. like you know just through actions as opposed to just dialogue. I mean, you know, clearly you guys aren't fascists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the crushing people's right to self-expression and their ability to just wear what the hell they want and listen to what they want to, it makes it, I think, that much more appealing for people. Yeah, people on the fringe, right, who want to embrace those sort of ideas. If you yeah. tell them they can't do it, then it's going to make them want to do it even more. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's the classic case. It's like, you know, it's like youth in revolt. It's a classic case of if your parents tell you can't do something, it's going to seem that much more desirable and you're going to do it. And you're probably going to get in trouble doing it instead of just having it out yeah. in the open and then having it be an, an, an open, honest conversation about it. Because, I mean, ultimately there's always a backlash against, like, the, politi- like the sort of politically correct kids, you know, who... And then, then it gets to be, like, this sort of regional thing where, like, okay, these guys are politically correct... You know, they have these ideas, these anti-fascist ideas. So someone who may want to rebel against that is going to be pushed even more towards, like, fascist and right-wing ideas yeah. because they just want to stand against somebody. Exactly. Instead of demystifying the whole thing and just being like, all right, hey, it, like in the United States, you know, we have freedom to embrace any kind of media that we want. You know, and it's up to the individual to, to discern which is healthy and which isn't. And by supporting that, you know, if you go, say Burzum went on tour, all right, you know, probably be sell, sold out shows everywhere. Right. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> but, sure. um, I mean, if, or say, say Graveland, like an, an actual fascist, you know, racist sort of band or a guy, legitimately, legitimately neo fascist goes on tour, you know, if somebody is, isn't, isn't, in agreement with that idea they shouldn't support it true but it's up to the consumer it's like it's like whether or not you go to the show whether or not you buy the t-shirts whether or not you buy the records like that sort of thing I mean 
it just um, it shouldn't be regulated. It shouldn't be dictated to people whether what they can and cannot consume as yeah. a consumer. Left up to left up to their own devices. I think people can make relatively sane decisions. And I I like Burzum's music, and I don't like him as a person. And I can separate those two things. Totally. Yeah, totally. And it's very yeah. it's very easy. It's almost laughably easy. Because I, I, it's like, you know, you have self-confidence, you know who you are, you know what your beliefs are, you're not going to be influenced by him in that kind of way. Which is one of the arguments that the kid that did the interview with you had was, I think we were talking about that, Marco and I actually, mm-hmm. or maybe, maybe you were telling me about it, that people are afraid that a kid is going <laughs> to come see the secret, yeah. and they admire you, they, they like your band, you, you know, you, you've touched their lives in some way, they listen to you all the time, and the kid admires you, and he sees you having a Burzum shirt on, so he's going to say, wow, I wonder, I wonder what this Burzum is all about, and then they're going to go, they're going to they're going to listen to the record, and be like, oh my god, I, I hate Jews and blacks. And but that's <laughs> not even promoted in the music. Uh, no, I know, but that's what I'm saying, though, but if people, if people get into that, and they, they research him, and then they find that somehow, it's like, like you have to be a like a weak, malleable person to be that easily influenced. And, that, and who said you wouldn't be completely influenced all the time by that? Yeah. You know, and it's like, I wouldn't worry about the Burzum shirt. All you have to do is look back into your history, 60-some-odd years, and it's right there, man. You fucking helped destroy most of Europe and fucking kill millions of people. Innocent people. Ruin, ruin lives across the earth. You know, it's like, you're worried about a fucking t-shirt, man. It's a fucking t-shirt by people whose family you threw in a camp. It doesn't make any fucking sense to me, man. That's the real irony right there. It's crazy. And there are, like you were saying before, there are legitimately, like, legitimate fascist movements in Germany. Exactly. Legitimately. And they could be focusing their energy on that instead of a fucking hardcore metal band wearing a goddamn t-shirt. It's like they just want to be seen as the type of people that are responding like they're on the forefront also it's safe it's safe in some ways to single out Marco and mm-hmm. The Secret because you know they operate within the hardcore scene the metal scene the underground scene and they know that you're not fascist like on some level like I cannot believe for a single second that someone in Nuremberg this guy who did the show or didn't do the show <laughs> would believe at all that you guys are fascists. So he knows that it's like, you know, this sort of like school patrol, like hall police, hall monitor situation where clearly you guys aren't fascists. So they're really, he's not laying anything on the line by confronting you on this topic. However, if you were to confront any one of uh, the neo-fascist, actual neo-fascist bands out there, he might have a, a different situation to deal with. He might actually have to step up and, you know, throw down, get physical with these guys or do something more extreme than just send you an email and not not entertain any conversation on it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's an easy out for him. It's an easy out for him to wear his badge of political correctness and victimize you guys and victimize us because we weren't able to play in Nuremberg, you know, and instead we played in... uh, Mar- Marburg, Germany. It was like a last minute like show. With a rap, uh, uh, a teenage rap metal band. Yeah. German rap metal band. Yeah. But, but I mean, you know, it was, it was a last minute show, man. And like we had, you know, we suffered up from it. Got people who clearly aren't fascists, you know, at, and you know, I mean, 
Toombs is from the U.S., so we're, we're, you know, there's like a sort of bottom line we have to maintain every night mm-hmm. yeah, to, totally. make, to make this thing make sense. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're on a really tight margin. So because of this guy's ignorance, you know, we are, you know, I mean, we're, we're doing okay, but like, you know, it made our lives harder, you know? Yeah. Not you guys. Like, you guys are, are cool with us, man. We're, we're behind you. We're not behind this guy in Germany, <laughs> this guy in <laughs> no. Nuremberg who decided that you guys were fascists and like made our lives fucking more difficult, you know? I just think it's ridiculous too that he didn't respond. Because if you yeah, accuse, if you yeah. make an accusation, you throw an accusation someone's way, the person being accused has is entitled to respond. You know, yeah. and to defend themselves and to defend their reputation because it's also marring your reputation. Mm-hmm. By canceling it, it it kicks up this controversy. Now people start talking about, you know, well, the secret they act, are they fascist? These guys, are these guys Italian fascists? <laughs> Are they fucking racist? You know? Yeah. I really can't believe they'd be like so superficial about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a kind of, uh, I mean, mm, it's a very hard, uh, it's something like very heavy, like saying that someone is like connected to. Well, the other thing too, it's like that's exactly, like that. that's exactly correct because once you make an accusation like that, you know, it's sort of like potentially could stay with you. You know, say, oh, those guys are racists. Those guys are fascists. It's like, that might be something that stays with you and isn't true. You know, so it's almost slanderous in nature. It is. The same thing happened with Wolves in the Throne Room. Exactly. It was quoted in Vice Magazine. They want a lot of play in Germany. It was Nuremberg, too, actually. Yeah. It was, it was like, exactly the, the same city, the same guy it's probably. probably yeah. Same kid. Same one. That's know? completely, it's completely insane to me, man. But those guys ended up playing the show, and I remember they had this big, you know, conference before the show started where they, like, Nathan had to, like, talk to these kids and explain that they weren't Nazis. And that's Wolves in the Throne Room, a bunch of, like, hippies. Hippies. These guys are, like, total, you know, hippie, you know, just liberal-minded dudes who don't have a racist bone in their body or a fascist bone in their body or made to, like, explain themselves to some fucking narrow-minded like PC motherfucker, you know? <laughs> and it's like, you know, maybe you, you should have had a dialogue with the people. Maybe there should have been some sort of conversation. There should have been some kind of open rapport between you and this promoter. And the whole thing could have been quelled and could have been settled before it came down to something like this, you know? And I mean, I totally acknowledge the fact that Germany has a heavy burden that they carry because of what they did in World War II what was allowed to happen in their country. But nonetheless, we're, we're from the USA, yeah. and you guys are from Italy. Yeah. We don't have the same burden that they do. I mean, the US doesn't, you know? They just have to, they, it's just keep it in the open. I mean, I remember the first time I went to Germany, I was seven, at 18, and I remember you can't get Mein Kampf anywhere. I mean, you can't get it anywhere. Not that people should, but it, it is, it, it, it exists, and it's valuable to their history to understand why? Why? What happened? Happened? And I think that the, and they ban they ban all that stuff. It's completely illegal. But yet everyone has one because now it's right. like this kitschy yeah. thing to have Mein Kampf because you can't have it. So you know, by 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 banning it, people are all of a sudden more attracted to it instead of just having it be out in the open. I think it's the same way in the states with kids when they drink. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like drinking drugs. 15, 14 year old kids they start drinking. It's like. Well, we're not supposed to do this. You have to be on the slide. It makes things more unsafe for everybody. Mm-hmm. Instead of just having it out in the open, be like, well, yeah, if you're going to do it, just do it at home. 
Yeah. And have your parents be cool with it, that kind of thing. Like, it, how do you open In Italy, is there a legal drinking age? 16, uh, 16 I think. Yeah, see, that's... Technically, I don't even know what it is in the States. Well, kids start 21 before 16, yeah. actually. Like, I, I started drinking, like, I don't know, 14, 14, I think. You're kind of raised with it. Culturally, yeah, I mean, it's not... Yeah. It's like having a glass of wine at dinner is not yeah. a weird thing. If you're, I think yeah, like, I, I, mean, smoke, I smoked my first cigarette when I was, like, 13. <laughs> what, what about well, uh, what about what about drugs like in Italy? I mean, you guys have like strict marijuana laws and things yeah, like that. Yeah, we have pretty strict laws about like uh, pretty much every kind of drug. I mean, it's very weird because like the the most like right winged part of the of our government actually tried to put like every kind of drug you know at the same level, like comparing like marijuana. With heroin. Yeah. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. Uh, again, it's a very super superficial thing. But, you know, I mean, we have like a. Uh, Italy is a very hypocrite country, you know. I think that probably everybody, everybody says the same about their own country. But, you know, I mean, uh, the Vatican still has a lot of power. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, and uh, even if people are not going to the church anymore, I mean, they still have their They're still their word is still, still important. Yeah, I mean, their word is still important. Like, and I don't know, we're like um, technically, uh, Italy is not like a religious country. I mean, oh, everyone, everyone should have like the right to be religious or not, or to choose any religion but there are like still politicians in Italy that are like uh, discussing if it's like right to have a crucifix in every in every school room room you know right right I mean I think it's totally crazy because yeah. I mean we're moving to a multicultural society and I mean it's gonna be uh, more more uh, even more multicultural in the future yeah. so it doesn't really make sense to I don't know force people just to I don't know to have something like that in, in every school room because like uh, the crucifix is not representing her country but only like a, a part of it right, right but it's not I mean every other idea is not represented so I don't think it's right I mean but people are still like discussing and like spending a lot of time like discussing about like such useless uh, topics, you know? I sure. mean, I, I think it's totally crazy, but... Well, even, the, even <laughs> in the States, there's like, theoretically, there's a separation of church and state, but a lot of, a lot of the more right-wing politicians clearly embrace a Christian ideology, and that you know, level of suppression is what is actually being carried through in our country, as reflected by our drug laws and just general legislation in the yeah. U.S. as well. Well, a lot, of the, a lot of those old laws, all the old blue laws and all the old drugs, I mean, fucking, in the U.S., every single drug was, it wasn't legal, it was decriminalized. There was no, there was nothing on the books about heroin, morphine about fucking um, marijuana, cocaine, all these things. They were just drugs that people, people, opium, people just did them. And they got along fine. I mean, we created one of the greatest legal documents on earth under the Constitution. 
in our Bill of Rights, it's like people were fucking smoking hash and, and doing opium. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like writing on hemp paper. like Which is illegal in yeah. the United States at this point. <laughs> I and mean, then, to, to grow hemp is illegal. It was even, even more insane when they started making these things illegal. The failure of prohibition and its subsequent creation and the strengthening of the mafia systems in Chicago and New York because of that, because of alcohol, that everyone did anyway, even though it was illegal. Yeah. It's really hypocrite. Normal. Yeah, it just turned, but the problem is, like, when you, like, our marijuana laws, it's the same thing that would happen in Prohibition. One day, you're having a beer at a bar, you're not a criminal, you're a tax-paying citizen, a hard-working guy. <laughs> and then the next day, they sign a fucking paper, and they're gonna haul your ass off to jail because you're drinking beer. <laughs> And then all these, yeah. all these, all these mafias got so much money from from running whiskey and gin, you know, because there wasn't a whole lot of beer going on. It was mainly whiskey and gin. It was like distilled spirits. Distilled spirits, and it was so much more dangerous because there was no regulation. So people were just going fucking. They were just creating this like bathtub yeah. whiskey. And also, yeah. Wine, yeah. distilled know? spirits are further away from the natural state of like you know natural fermentation and whatnot. Yeah. So there's like yeah. the plant just, earth energies. Taken out of the uh, the process, you know. This completely blows my mind, though. You know, to consider. I mean, the, the epic failure. Prohibition was such an epic failure, <laughs> and it was only because a, a small group of people wanted it to be that way. Or was it like and people just kept 30s? on drinking, man? In the thirties, yeah, the thirties in our country, yep. People, and that, and it, it's actually widely seen as being one of the most like wild, freewheeling times in the country. Because everything was underground. Yeah, everything yeah. was completely yeah. underground. And and uh, the the thing is though in the United States you know the the law enforcement like right now yeah drugs like marijuana and whatnot are are illegal in most states in California if you have like a medical card you can purchase marijuana for medical reasons quote unquote yeah something's changing but there's but there's still like money money is really what governs the whole thing because we have the yeah. DEA we have law enforcement they need to be erased and, and that the erased. DEA yeah so with those agencies people drawing salaries they need something to enforce so these law enforcement agents are enforcing are enforcing these drug laws you know which if you're someone who's smoking a fucking plant which grows naturally you can get thrown into jail with a guy who like rapes kids or something like that, yeah. and Even your if life you're is not fucking ruined. Harming anyone, or yeah. if you're not like being, I don't know, dangerous for anyone. Yeah. I mean, if you're even if you're like, I don't know, just like relaxing at home. Yeah. yeah. So it's great. like making broccoli illegal. It's like yeah. suddenly you can't have <laughs> broccoli. You know, it's like suddenly broccoli is illegal, and, and if you're caught. Holding broccoli, you're, you're in, broccoli. I love broccoli too. Broccoli. <laughs> Dude, that's the staple of the gorilla diet is broccoli. Really? Yeah. What Dude, about gorillas deers? eat broccoli? I love it. Yeah. What, what about deers? We were talking about it. Deers? deers? Oh, reindeer. And reindeer. Then Amanita mascara mushrooms. Yeah. Man. They're so just hallucinating. They're like the hallucinating time. constantly, dude. They're just blazing <laughs> on psilocybin <laughs> mushrooms all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking funny, man. I don't know if I'll ever be able to look at reindeer the same way. But even psilocybin, like mushrooms and, and, and stuff like DMT and whatnot are, are all Schedule One drugs where you can get thrown and do hard time because of these <laughs> things, which are fucking natural substances, man. Yeah, it blows my mind. I mean, my, my, my parents smoke weed every now and then. You know, my dad has certain illnesses that that the effects are relieved a little bit by 
um, smoking grass. And he doesn't smoke it all the time, but he likes to have a toke every now and then. He has for his whole life, basically. Uh-huh. And he was saying, I was like, you know what, man? You work hard your whole life. You're a military veteran. You pay your taxes. You know, you raise a family. And the idea that you could go to prison, you would go to prison. My dad would go to prison. Or my mom. Yeah. For fucking having, having some weed. Makes me sick to my stomach, man. It's insane. Yeah, it's insane. At least, I mean, New Jersey, where my parents live, the laws are pretty loose. I mean, you're not going to go to jail the first time. A place like Oklahoma, it's harsh. Yeah, we have friends in Oklahoma. Which, yeah, yeah. Who possibly if were if they were caught, oh. even though they're like you know really stable, they're married. Yeah, you know nice. they live in a house. They're yeah. both gainfully employed. You know, they're like upstanding citizens as perceived by the American public. Because they smoke weed, they could be thrown in jail for like, you know, a, a lot of years. It's, it's the, I mean, it's the whole thing. It's, I mean, going back to just civil liberty and personal liberty, the, the idea that as long as you're not hurting anyone else mm-hmm. or infringing on anyone else's rights and liberties, you should be able to do whatever the fuck you want to do. Yeah, I totally Anything. agree. Anything. Complete, total freedom, man. Like, decriminalization of all drugs. Decriminalization, complete decriminalization. And I've heard the argument that, you know, oh, yeah, if we make heroin legal, you know, people are just going to start doing it. It's like, you don't have to make it legal. You just have to remove the criminal element from yeah. it. It's a, yeah. matter of the, it's a matter of the health system and society to deal with. I don't think that if heroin was all of a sudden decriminalized, that any of us... Mike, Mike Hill, <laughs> the, the prime example. He's Mike here. Once they make it legal, yeah. Can you? Ima- I, I can't Not imagine. Like you're jacking heroin. Suddenly, I'm like smack, no. like yeah, like like banging, like smack every night. Yeah, you know? but, because the thing is, it's not the law or the fear of going to prison that keeps people from doing these things. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the the common sense that it's going to be really fucking bad if yeah. you become a junkie or you become addicted to this drug or you die. You know, people don't. You don't need a government. To tell you, with legislature that this is you know this is a bad thing. Yeah. I, I don't think I don't think you need that, man. You know what is totally crazy about this about this whole situation, in my opinion, is that using the kind of uh, attitude that governments try to have, like to fight drugs, hasn't yeah. been useful at all. No, it's good for anyone. I mean, it, it doesn't mean, like, a good thing. No. I mean, the war against, like, drugs has been lost. I mean, there are, like, more drugs users yeah. now than, I don't know, 50 years ago. It right? actually creates more violence. Yeah. And furthermore, creates a completely horrendous system that exists in Mexico, south of our border, you know, where people are getting murdered, and there's these, yeah. like, incredibly powerful drug cartels. And if... There's basically exists to serve the United States' drug habits. You know? I mean, drugs exist. People do them. They're fun. They can be really fun. <laughs> but also, yeah. like, they're fun, but they can also be, like, part... I mean, things like, like Amanita Mascara Mushrooms, DMT, are naturally occurring substances. Marijuana. Mm-hmm. Substances like that, they occur naturally. And it's, like, early man, when he came down from the trees, like, sampled all of these things and is an integral part of our development as a species. Yeah. You know, and... They're here for a reason. They're here to be used. So it's why? How can that be fucking illegal? Even like <laughs> coca leaf. I mean, without being refined into, you know, in, in industrial uh, situations, um, industrial factory situations, um, like exists in Colombia and different parts of South and Latin America, 
the coca leaf grows all over the place, and people it's a it's a it's a mild stimulant, so people just chew on it all the time, mm-hmm. and just it's just like a buzz, like a coffee buzz all day, you know. And I mean that's the thing. Like what I was saying before, that the laws don't stop people from doing these things; they just criminalize them. I have a lot of my friends that do cocaine. I know a ton of people <laughs> in New York that sure. do cocaine. It's everywhere. Yeah. I mean, whether you like it or not, it's it's all over the fucking place. Yeah, and if I wanted to, I could literally make two phone calls. I could make three phone calls, and within a half hour... <laughs> I had to think about that. Two, no, three. <laughs> no, well, because it's three different situations. I could, call, I could call my weed dealer, and I can get him to just ride his bicycle over, you know, and then offer me fucking grape ape or headband or, you know... Headband. Yeah, young widow or whatever the hell it's called. And then I could call uh, the coke guy if I want, because I, I, I have a number. People have numbers, you know. Call that guy, he'll show up. And then I can order a pizza. So I could have a pizza, a fucking a bag of Coke, and a bag of weed within a half hour. Shout out to us for numbers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I think yeah, it's, not, it's not like only an American situation. I mean, I think it's pretty much like that everywhere in the world. I mean, it's... What like it's really disgusting, in my opinion, is that like a, a lot of people... Like politicians are like trying to sell this whole idea of purity, you know, to like the average people, just like to have their support and to have their money and to have power, you know. Even if it's a total nonsense, I mean, every smart person or like normally intelligent person in the world, probably. Know what the deal is. I mean, yeah, yeah, totally. You know, I, well, I was a politician in the U.S. I forget his name. I, I was listening to uh, NPR or WMYC uh, before we left. I was in the shower, and I have a radio that comes on. It's WMYC. It's a public radio station. And um, there was talking about what fucking name? I forget his name. But anyway, he was so vocal about being in opposition to marijuana. And then he was found to be a fucking pothead, man. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, what I forgot that guy's name, too. You fucking yeah. sell out, man. Yeah. It happens the same in Italy all the time. the Joe Rogan podcast, actually, we were listening to. When he was oh, yeah, that's there. right. I can't remember that cat's name. Yeah, though, I man. forget his name. But, yeah, he was, like, fucking selling people, like, putting people in prison, basically. And then he's a fucking weedhead, man. It's like, what is wrong with you? You're, you're insane. It's, it's definitely the same in Italy. Uh, Hypocrites. I mean, yeah. more than one politician got in prison by like the same law he voted for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. totally, you know, yeah. it's nonsense, but I mean, it's crazy. It happened. I mean, it's the same thing with like you know, like gay politicians. They're like you know, no gay marriage and all this stuff. Then all of a sudden they come out of the closet. And it's like, but it's always something really sketchy man. though. It's, it's always just, like it's not yeah, like the guy's a call boy or something yeah, like that. It's not like the dude's like gay and has like a partner or is like into like out. hanging out. He's like doing some sketchy like glory hole activity in like a rest area somewhere and someone took a photo of them on their phone you know like yeah. head in a park or, or getting a like hand that. job or something yeah like by some fucking <laughs> rent it's, it's yeah or some dude comes forward as like the masseuse you know who like visited him at his <laughs> at his like you know at his at his hotel room while he was like you know in some conference or something like that it's never it's never the guy's never engaged in like a healthy relationship with another man. It's always some sketchy, like under underbelly, like version of that sort of lifestyle. And that's another thing too. It's like this whole idea that of of gay marriage in the U.S. It's like, who? I mean, you're not hurting anybody, man. You know? No, I mean, you're not hurting anybody. You're just trying to be happy. 
Yeah. So just let people be happy. What's the point of oppressing people like that, man? It's like, what do, you, what, what do they get out of it is what I'm really curious about. In Italy, politicians complained about an IKEA. Oh, yeah. You know, okay. the furniture. Yeah, of course. We have them in yeah. the States, too. Yeah. Uh, they complained about an IKEA advertising uh, that was saying, I mean, like, uh, something like IKEA is like home for everyone. And uh, they put like this picture of like two guys like holding their hands. People complained about it. I mean, it's so fucking crazy. I mean, I just don't know what people are afraid of. Yeah. I mean, it's not like, it's like, they're not gonna come try to fuck you, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> you, know what I mean? totally. you got a wife or yeah, a girlfriend, man. like you live out in the country, who cares? They're not gonna come in and ruin your neighborhood. Actually, they'll probably improve your fucking neighborhood. Yeah. Well, they're they're... A, lot <laughs> a lot better of a, pla a place to live. It's gonna look better. Yeah. You better know, restaurants. Are, yeah, you're gonna have nicer haircuts. Yeah, totally. You know what yeah. I mean? Like better jeans. There'll be a gym in the area. Yeah, yeah. A gym, you know, everyone's gonna be stoked. It'll be a dog park. Like, yeah, all that totally. kind of shit. <laughs> It's like, come on, man, just fucking, just let it roll, you know? Like, what, what do you care? And who the yeah. fuck is the government to stand away of someone being happy, man? I mean, it's like, if two guys want to get together and blow each other, that's fucking, and they're happy. Let them do it. Let them do it, dude. Let them fucking you know? do it, man. The alternative is, like, worse to, like, keeping it under wraps and suppressing all those feelings and, like, I mean, there's no alone. benefit, like, for, no, like, oppressing, like, uh, I don't know, like, people loving each other, I mean... You crush people's spirits, man. You, you you turn everyday normal citizens into these fucking, these lecherous animals, you know? They, they reduce them to that, and it's, there's no point in doing that. You force people underground, it's like, it's a little bit, you know, you gotta go to these like special clubs, or you gotta go, yeah. imagine being a fucking, you have to I, wear think, a I think this would be a good time for the, uh, the Donner Pass story, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man. Actually, this is, this this is, is a, a really legendary good. story, man. This it's been funny. making the rounds in our little circle of friends. Like back, I don't know, like seven years ago, maybe when I used to play in the band Anodyne, we uh, we were on tour and uh, we were crossing from Sac Sacramento, California, over to uh, Reno, Nevada. Yeah. So uh, across the Sierra Nevada mountain range, there's the Donner Pass, which. Back in the 1800s, there was that lost party who ended up eating eating each other. They got snowed in. They ate each other. So we're um, we're traveling and like everyone has to take a piss and uh, you know, yeah, you want. <laughs> you having a hard time? <laughs> All right, cool. It's already open. It's already open. Yeah, it's getting like harder and harder to open the beers. Yeah. So um. So we're, we're driving on this, whatever highway that is, it goes across Donner Pass, and uh, all right, cheers. Cheers, man. So um, we see a sign, the Donner Pass rest area, and we were like, yeah, man, Donner Pass, like motherfuckers like cannibalized each other, let's take a piss <laughs> here. So we pull into the uh, rest area, and um, Josh, Scott, who plays bass in the awesome band Castavet and Defeatist, who was back then playing bass in Anodyne, He's the first guy to go into the rest area. I'm following him. He goes in and he comes out. And he's like, dude, don't go in there. Don't go in there. <laughs> it's like, he couldn't even get out what, what the deal was. So I'm like, oh, fuck it, I gotta piss. So I went in there, I'm standing in, the in, the, in front of the urinal. There's one urinal and a stall and this like fluorescent light that was flickering. And I'll never forget this like weird blue gray, like pallid tone that was in the room. So, I go up to the urinal, pull out my dick, I'm taking a piss, and there's this writing 
this like message scrawled on the wall right at eyesight and it's like for fabulous head <laughs> tap your foot twice or turn right and show hard <laughs> so I'm reading this it's like I'll be here between 6pm and 9pm on whatever particular date it was and I looked at, the, I looked at my watch and I'm like oh wow it's 7.30 and I'm like oh, you know uh, whatever date and I'm like oh yeah that's today I'm like holy shit so I look to the right and I see this hole in the in the wall of the stall. Oh, and there's no. a fucking eye looking back at me. And I see this foot and I just peace out. I'm like, this is too intense for me, man. This isn't my scene. You know, I like girls. Where was, where was this? It was in it was in California. It was like right before you go into Nevada in the Don Sierra Pass. Nevada Donner Pass. It's only because they smoke weed, man. So it's like, <laughs> They have, yeah. So so I left, man, and I was like, whoa, this is like fucked up. So I ended up peeing outside. But I'm like, this is what it's driven to, though. It's like this poor guy has to like hang out in a rest area to suck an anonymous cock because whatever like climate in his town doesn't let him meet somebody who can potentially be happy with. Did you, you know? say eventually you guys watched him come out? Yeah, like we watched 49ers, him. Like, starter jacket yeah actually we, we were sitting in the van and we were all freaked out and we were just like oh wow that was really fucked up so we watched this dude come out he had like this regular nondescript looking guy and he just some regular looking guy with like a 49ers like sweatshirt and a baseball hat you know and he came out kind of looked around and he went back in so that dude is like in that was in that rest area for like three hours like waiting for some guy to show up so he can suck his cock <laughs> you know, and like, yeah, it's you know, it's funny and everything. It's a funny story, but it's like I really, you know, as the years it's go not by, even that fun. it's not really that funny. But it's yeah. like as the years go by, I think about that. I'm like, you know, everyone struggles with happiness, man, and everyone struggles to find someone in their life that they can care about and love and 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 feel comfortable with. And this poor guy doesn't have the opportunity to do that because people look down on homosexuality in our country. You know, how and it's people, like, how many people just like. Uh, feel really guilty for this, you know, like, like, commit suicide yeah. or stuff like that, especially totally. in, in Italy, like in the south of Italy, it's like one of those things that you, like, the family can accept, I think, like this. Yeah, right? I mean, they're just yeah. gonna, you're just gonna, if you're a homosexual in southern Italy, you're gonna be cast out of everything. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy because, uh, I don't know, in regions like uh, Sicily, The only way to offend people is basically to call them homosexuals. Yeah. If you read I mean, all their jokes, you mafia, yeah. you're you're respected. Oh yeah. God, yeah. And, and, you're and if you're gay, yeah. you're you know, it's like. I mean, I don't want to generalize because obviously there are like good people sure. everywhere, yeah. but yeah. yeah, we have such like such a anti-homosexual culture in Italy. I mean, we're a Latin country, like, uh, guys want to be fucking machos, you know? Yeah. Well, that, that's where everyone goes wrong, man. Because it's like, the reality of the matter is that everyone's reacting to this kind of, like, monotheistic, you know, religious system. Even on a, even, even like people who don't, aren't religious, there's still this sort of monotheistic vibe where there's like a strong male dominant image that people follow. You know, there's like a total suppression of like female energy in like all societies, it seems. So there's this like domination, like male trip being put forth as like a desirable 
you know, loner guy. Like, I don't, you know, no, you know, self-reliant. But, I mean, the bottom line is, like, there's men and women. And, like, there's a male and a female. Even if that's embodied in one person, it's like that balance is not put into effect in the way society, our societies see things, you know. And that's why there's all these problems. That's why people aren't allowed to be gay. The word cocksucker. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that's like a fucking, you know, that's like an insult to somebody, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But let me tell you what, man. I've been on a tour. I don't know how long is this tour. A year we've been on this fucking tour. It seems like. It feels like it. You know, a cocksucker is like getting your cock sucked is like one of the fucking nicest things you can do to somebody, honestly. Dude. So it's I like, how is that mean, fucking it negative? Is, yeah, it's like one of the nicest things you yeah. can do for somebody. It's one really of the nicest is. things. Yeah. It's like, oh, do you think after after getting your cock sucked, you're going to be like, Ah, nah. You're gonna say thank you. You're like, that was fucking awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate oh, that. You appreciate like, you didn't that, have to man. Do that, but you did, and yeah. that was great for me. I, but somehow know. it's being it's being viewed as like this sort of like you know d- like domination scene, you know, or like some sort of trip where like you know you're 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 a little bit less than the other person, and I don't I don't buy into that, man. You know. Yeah, I don't buy into that either, man. It's ridiculous. We should wrap it up, maybe. Yeah, man. We got some food coming. We got some food coming. Um, you know, we're just chilling. We're here in Cork, Ireland, getting ready to Beautiful play. Beautiful town. Beautiful town, like Cork, man. We yeah. Like it. Yeah. So it's I like, like it. Yeah. Cork. But, you know, yeah. Cork's yeah, cool, man. I haven't really seen anything except the inside of the venue. <laughs> <laughs> Seems nice to me, man. I actually walked down the street and went over to the river, and it's it's a nice looking city. It's yeah. a very very pretty yeah. town. Yeah. I like it a lot. Yeah. It seems cool. I, I feel like. Ireland in general has been a really nice experience so far. It's like I, a lot of I, I've never been here myself. This is my first trip to Ireland. I think every I don't know. Have you guys been here before, Mark? Never. 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 First time. Yeah, it's been pretty cool, man. People I mean, are great. People are really friendly. Super friendly. Really accommodating. I'm I'm actually surprised that you can get a really good cup of coffee in Ireland because in the UK you cannot, which is where we're going back to tomorrow. We're playing at Chef South Southampton. Southampton. So yeah. Uh, yeah, we're back on the uh, the, the in, intense travel uh, scenario starting uh, tonight, actually. Yeah, it seems like we've been doing nothing but incredibly intense traveling the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> like, All ferries. Eight, yeah. eight boats on this trip. Eight, eight boats. I feel like a sailor. <laughs> I had vertigo the other night, man. I was totally, yeah. Look at this guy, his anchor tattoo I was fucked chest. up. I was trying to do merch when we were in Belfast, and I felt like I was still on a boat. My head was moving. Around. Yeah, like... Yeah, it sucked. Yeah. I hate it. Well, I can smell the food, and it's time to wrap this thing up. Uh, also, I think doors are opening soon. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll reconvene at some point in the future. But, uh, yeah, man, thanks for hanging out. Good time. Later.